The following program is sponsored by Cleveland Right to Life and is responsible for its content. Welcome to From the Median, a daily report from the front line of the pro-life movement, discussing two worldviews that are driving our culture in opposite directions. From the Median asks, which side of the road are you on? What direction do you want our culture to go? Tune in as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. And now your host, Molly Smith. Good evening and welcome to From the Median, where we are concerned with the middle ground, not just to understand both sides of an argument, but also to awaken the consciences of those who are neutral or indifferent to this, the greatest civil rights movement of all times, the pro-life movement. This evening, we continue our Bringing America Back to Life series. Tonight, we will feature a presentation from our 2023 convention. Our speakers' ideas will inspire you with principles, experiences, and wisdom as they join us to pave the way back to life through prayer, action, voting, and education. I am pleased to introduce Seth Dillon, entrepreneur, venture investor, speaker, and humorist. He is currently CEO of the Babylon Bee, the fast-growing news satire site that has overtaken the onion in traffic and engagement. Taking on the tone of a traditional news media publication, the Bee hilariously satirizes real-world events and public figures. Seth and his brother Dan recently co-founded Not The Bee, a humor-based entertainment site with the Babylon Bee's original founder, Adam Ford. Enjoy his insightful and witty talk, laughing at lunacy and fighting for life. Well, hello. hello. It's great to be with you all. Um, that was a wild experience, going on the, the Joe Rogan experience and being pressed that issue. He made it very personal, and it was, uh, it was challenging, but, you know, it was... Possibly the biggest stage life has ever been defended on before. I don't know, 12 million-something viewers he's got, listeners. It's, it's, it's insane. So to have that opportunity was really cool. Um, thank you. It's, it's an honor to be here. It is. I am Seth Dillon, the CEO of the Babylon Bee, the world's most trusted, factually accurate news source. <laughs> and I do have to say, it is always nice to be uh, offered a platform instead of having one taken away. Um, <laughs> which is something we've had to become accustomed to over the years. Um, we have surpassed The Onion. We are now actually the second most popular satire site, just behind CNN.com, if you've heard of that one. <laughs> On a serious note, though, I do want to thank you, sincerely thank you for being here tonight in support of life. Just because Roe has been overturned doesn't mean the fight is over. There's still work to be done. There are still laws to change and lives to save. Um, there's still no more urgent cause than this one. So thank you for being here and for supporting life. I may run a comedy site, but I talk about abortion often. And whenever I do, I inevitably, inevitably hear from somebody who thinks I should shut up and stick to cracking jokes. Why do you care so much, they ask. I hear that question a lot. Do you ever hear that question when you're talking with people about this topic? Why do you care so much? And my response is always the same. It never varies. Why don't you care? Really? Do I have to come up with a justification for why I care? If I had to, I could name about 60 million of them, if I had to. But you need to turn it on them. Always turn it on them when they try to ask you, why do you care about this topic? Why don't you care? Make them defend their callousness and complacency in the face of unspeakable evil. It's a good thing that so many of you are here, that you're equipping yourselves and, and, uh, and preparing yourselves to be defenders of life. You never know where God's going to lead you. Who knows, maybe some of you, one of you, could end up on Joe Rogan's show one day or a show like it with a large audience and be pressed to defend life on a big platform. I did not see that coming. I didn't see my life leading me down this path where I would eventually be on that show, for one thing, but also I didn't, I didn't see that conversation going in that direction. When, when, uh, when he invited me to come on the show, there was no pre-planning that happened where we talked about topics that we were going to be addressing. That, that didn't really occur. You just show up, he pours some whiskey in a glass, you toast... And then you talk. And then he blows a lot of smoke in your face for a couple of hours. <laughs> so I wasn't expecting to talk about abortion that day, but I was prepared to. And this is a key point. I was prepared to because I'd taken the time to learn to articulate not just what I believed, but why I believed it. I don't think we can skip that part. If you skip that part, you'll end up missing opportunities to defend life when it really matters. And that's one of several key takeaways from that interview I want to share with you. The second one is this. 
Keep the main thing the main thing in these conversations. Don't get distracted by red herrings. Don't let highly charged emotional scenarios steer you off course. The premises of the pro-life argument are either true or they're false. Challenge your opponent to refute them. If he can't, then your conclusion follows whether he likes it or not. That's how deductive arguments work. Three, you don't have to compromise to be effective. You don't, and you shouldn't. We often feel the need to find some kind of middle ground, usually because we want to be agreeable and avoid being offensive. That's squishy and weak and self-defeating. There's no middle ground on this issue. Life is either valuable or it isn't. So I refuse to meet Rogan in the middle and grant an exception for rape. They want you to appear cruel and callous. That's the goal. That's when they bring up points like that. The the point is to make you uncomfortable, to feel like you're doing something wrong. And we can't just say in those circumstances, yeah, well, in that case, I guess ending an innocent life is okay. The moment you do that, you lose your footing. You lose all your footing. There's an obvious place where the line should be drawn. We should draw it clearly and defend it unapologetically. Every time we compromise between right and wrong, wrong wins. And for what it's worth, I think Rogan actually respected me more for holding my ground than he would have if I'd caved a little under the pressure. Four, you don't need to have a uterus anymore to discuss abortion, apparently. (laughs) Remember how they used to say no uterus, no opinion? It's a pretty common thing. I heard that a lot. No uterus, no opinion. Well, as if you need certain body parts to be right about something. They gave that up, though, when they started screaming, trans women are women. Trans women are women. Didn't they? They're the ones suddenly rejecting the idea that biology determines womanhood. So by their own stupid standards, which were fallacious to begin with, by the way, they can no longer appeal to biology to get men to stop saying true things while they're in earshot. Five, you can't have an honest discussion about abortion until you get the wildly dishonest euphemisms out of the way. Abortion is not health care. Let's be painfully and uncomfortably clear about what it really is. It's a procedure that intentionally kills a baby. It's only deemed successful if somebody dies. That's why I said abortion is healthcare the way rape is lovemaking, and it will always and only be healthcare's horrifying antithesis. And by the way, their heavy use of euphemisms, it tells you they know abortion is wrong. You don't whitewash something unless you know it's dirty. The deceptive language they use is proof they aren't just wrong but lying. Cut through the euphemisms with precise and accurate language, and their justification for abortion falls away. Six. I told you I have several of these takeaways from this talk with Rogan. Well, Rogan seemed to come around a bit at the end. The goal doesn't have to be changing the mind of the person you're talking to. I think it's a mistake. We, you know, we get in this mentality that when we're engaged in one of these debates, we've lost if we haven't changed their mind. That's not necessarily the case. Say it for the people on the sidelines, especially if you're engaging online. Anytime that you're involved in an online debate, there are people who are viewing it, who are seeing it, they're witness to it that aren't necessarily engaged in it. And not all of those people have already reached a firm conclusion on these issues. They're listening. You might change their minds and not even know it. So it's not always about defeating your opposition in the debate and getting them to back down and concede that you're right. You may have an impact uh, on the people who are listening in. Seven, the more boldly you defend life, the more they'll hate you for it. I got a lot of hate mail. I always get a lot of hate mail for making jokes. It's ridiculous. But I've never seen anything like after that interview, the kind of mail that was streaming and the kind of things that people were saying. Um, I had to report a couple of things to the police. One guy actually said that he was going to prove that I was pro-choice by raping my wife in front of my children. Those are the kinds of responses I got after doing that interview. I was pretty respectful too. I just held my ground and said what I believed. And that's the kind of response I get. I think that these, uh, it, it, it demonstrates something, though, these unhinged ravings of lunatics that come out when you engage on these topics. It shows that there's much more here than just a political discussion. This is a spiritual divide. It's a spiritual battle. And so uh, you have to keep that in mind. You're, gonna, you're, you're going to re- be on the receiving end of some really nasty stuff, really nasty stuff, and, and it's not just political. Eighth and final takeaway... Don't drink too much whiskey during a debate. It's, it only helps up to a point. 
and then it hurts you. So who am I, of all people, to be standing up here and talking to you about issues like this? I am uh, the CEO of a comedy site, right? But it's the CEO of a comedy site that's been fact-checked, smeared, and censored, and that's seen nearly 100 of its jokes come true as if they were prophecies instead of punchlines. I think uh, in, my cir- in my situation, my circumstance, what I do now and what I've experienced, I have at least somewhat of a unique perspective on, on the insanity of our age, on the on the all-out war uh, on reality, reason, and truth that we're seeing in our culture today um, because I've been right in the middle of it. And there is a war, by the way. I'm using that language deliberately. There's a war on reality, reason, and truth. That's not hyperbole. It's obviously true. I think we've become so accustomed to the madness that it's easy to lose sight of it, but we need to resist that tendency. We need to continually remind ourselves that the craziness around us isn't normal or good or deserving of our acceptance, it must be consciously and constantly resisted. There is no such thing as a family-friendly drag show. Does anyone agree with that? There is no such thing as a safe abortion. There's no such thing as a pregnant man. Am I allowed to say that? There's no such thing as a transgender kindergartner. Are we kidding? For real? Do we have to say that? The left's lunacy is turning the world into a parody of itself. They want us to join them in the upside down, but they aren't asking. I think you'll notice this, you know... Think of these things that, that, we, that we're dealing with right now. Uh, preferred pronouns. Are they preferred, really? You will be canceled and destroyed if you use the wrong pronoun. Is that a preference? They're required. They're demanding that we join them in the, in the upside down. And I think that one of the most valuable contributions we can make to society today, in, in addition to having kids and raising them in the truth would be to resist, stubbornly resist their efforts to drag you into the upside down and admit that up is down and right is wrong and two and two make five. Resist. There's a very common misconception, widely held misconception, that our job here at the B is easier because of how insane the world is. And honestly, that couldn't be further from the truth. It couldn't be further from the truth. And I, I, it's, I guess there's a way of putting this that makes sense. It might help you see the point that I'm trying to make. You know, we have to satire exaggerates the truth to make a point, right? We have to, it's, it's hyperbolic. It's, it's like a caricature. So we have to go a step beyond the truth in the direction that the truth is pointing. And just imagine if your job is to make jokes that are funnier than what Democrats are doing in real life. Imagine if your job is to write jokes that are funnier than a Kamala Harris speech. Good luck. It's not easy. There are times when I think we're successful. You know, we'll tell a joke that, that gets some laughs, and the Democrats haven't done it yet. It's still a joke. But it's only a joke for a very brief period of time we're finding. I mentioned that we've had jokes that have come true, like prophecies instead of punchlines. We track them in a spreadsheet. There's 92 of them right now. We're we're coming up on 100. And and they're coming true at a rate of two or three a month right now. So within the next couple of months, we should hit the 100 mark. Jokes that came true. It's insane. I I actually want to show you guys some examples of these because it's way better to show than tell. I think I have control of this. I do. Yes. Gavin Newsom named U-Haul Salesperson of the Year. I'm starting with a B headline, okay? This is a B headline. You don't really see our logo there, but... September of 2021, we made this joke. Everybody was fleeing Texas. And it was, this is kind of a funny idea, right? That he's U-Haul Salesperson of the Year because... He's driving people away. Well, this is a Fox story from January, a few months later. Californians fleeing for Texas so fast, U-Haul runs out of trucks for them. (laughs) 
And it was funny until it was true. <laughs> California and Illinois saw the largest net loss of U-Haul trucks. Lego unveils new genderless bricks with no male-female connectors. <laughs> Now, this was in May of 2021, and if you fast forward, that was a while ago, by the way. We, we were way ahead of the curve on this one. We suspected that it was coming. We did one, uh, we actually did one about Mattel, too. We had, like, the first trans, uh, uh, first, oh, a pregnant Ken doll was our joke, that there was going to be a pregnant Ken doll. And, uh, and, then, and then recently, they, they came out with their first transgender Barbie, which is not, it wasn't pregnant Ken, but it was still a transgender Barbie. These things will come true eventually, right? When, when people ask me, how do you write your headlines? Well, just, just do whatever you think they're going to do, like a month from now. <laughs> Lego commits to removing gender bias and harmful stereotypes from its toys. This is October of 2021. Clarence Thomas receives invite to celebration of first black Supreme Court justice. <laughs> I hope he saw this and got a laugh out of it because I don't know if you saw this one, but this is a real tweet I'm about to show you. A real tweet. Katanji Brown Jackson is sworn in as the first black Supreme Court justice in U.S. history. They did later delete this because it was called to their intention that Clarence Thomas exists. Study finds anyone still wearing a mask at this point is probably just super ugly. <laughs> what I love about this next slide is just how sim similar the real story is. This was April of 2021. You fast forward a little bit to February of 2023. Unattractive individuals wear masks more often than others, study says. I mean, it's hard to take too much credit for that joke because it's kind of obvious that you got a pretty face, you're going to show it, you know? We are criticized, I'll say probably one of the chief criticisms, criticisms that we hear from others is that we, uh, our jokes are too close to reality. They're too believable. <laughs> you know, you are, uh, you're skirting the line between reality and satire and you're duping people on purpose. You tricked that grandmother into sharing that story with her Facebook friends <laughs> by making that story so believable she couldn't help but share it. Brian Stelter called us hoax satire for that reason. Hoax satire, he said. And the New York Times actually wrote a report about us that said that we were a far-right misinformation site that traffics in misinformation under the guise of satire. Those are their exact words. <laughs> it may be because some of our jokes um, were picked up by New York Times reporters and shared as if they were real, that they, that they said that. <laughs> Idiots over the New York Times. We did, we did a joke about how Trump claimed to have done more for Christianity than Jesus himself. And, uh, and two New York Times reporters shared it, thinking, hoping that it was real. But the story with that joke just gets better and better and better because it got fact-checked by Snopes and rated false. And then last year, he went on a radio show and said he'd done more for Christianity and religion in general than any other person in history. <laughs> it's hard to keep up with this stuff. Does, does Snopes have to go and update that fact check now? Now it's true. It was satire. It's funny because it's true. You know, there's a, there's a grain of truth in every joke. I'm sure you guys are familiar with those sayings. The problem is not that our jokes are too close to reality. The problem is that reality is too close to satire. That's the problem. Let's get our focus on what the actual issue is here. Why are these jokes believable? 
because there's truth to them. I think it's valid. The fact that we have almost 100 jokes that have come true is validation that we're onto something. There's truth to our jokes. We're not rooting them in some false narrative that we hope is true. We're, we're tied into what's actually happening in the real world and, and piggybacking on that. But um, the left is not exactly course correcting here and heading back in the direction of sanity. They're not noticing that everything that they're doing was already predicted on the Babylon Bee and thinking, hey guys, uh, we're a joke and we need to fix this. We need to go back. Um, they're not noticing that. Instead, instead, they're getting angry at the satirists and giving jokes a truth rating and going hard into this fact-checking thing. I want to show you some examples of these, too, because these are kind of fun. We're giving jokes. Jokes are no longer funny, guys. They're false. And false information is dangerous. This is the one that kind of started it all. This is the, uh, the fact-check heard around the world from 2018. CNN purchases industrial-sized washing machine to spin news before publication. <laughs> it's a pretty dumb joke, if we're being honest. It's not believable, certainly. Snopes fact-checked this and rated it false. They were... What happened was, this was in 2018, so this is when, when Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, the heads of these big tech companies were being blamed for Donald Trump getting elected president, right? You let too many conservatives talk in public, which resulted in a Republic, Republican getting elected. We can't let that happen anymore. We've got we to gotta flag all of their stuff for misinformation. We've got to fact check them and, and make sure that we're sticking to reality because people buy into lies, and that's the only re- possible reason why a Republican might get elected. So... They cave to this pressure, and they start working with third-party fact-checkers. They start working with Snopes and some others. And we get rated false for this. Facebook sends me a message and says that if we continue publishing fake news on their platform, they're going to demonetize and deplatform us over this joke. So I actually I emailed Snopes, and I said, what is, it, what is it that you guys use as your basis for determining what you're going to fact-check? Is there, is it, did you think that maybe this was real, so you looked into it, or it was... Were there reports about this? And the response, I got a response from the president directly, because that's who I emailed. The president of Snopes uh, emailed me back and said, well, there's a threshold that each thing has to cross. Like, there has to be a certain number of reports from the community where people are confused about whether a story is real. And they're checking with us. They're saying, Snopes, is this true? And I said, show me one example of somebody who sent you this joke, asking you serious, not trolling you, someone who is being serious, who's asking if this is true, and I never heard from him again. But they rated this false. CNN praises Taliban for wearing masks during attack. Taliban fighters responsibly wearing masks. It's covering their nose and mouth, you'll notice. I, I always like taking jabs at CNN. They, they're, they're terrible. But whose fault is it? Let me ask you honestly, whose fault is it that this joke was so believable and it went viral and got fact-checked? Is it our fault or CNN's because of their track record that maybe this is believable that they might write something like this? It's an indictment of whoever we're satirizing when someone believes a joke like this is true, not the satirist himself. Ocasio-Cortez appears on The Price is Right, guesses everything is free. (laughs) False. Didn't happen. She was never on The Price is Right. But she is stupid, so it's believable. I love this one. Ninth Circuit Court overturns death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So when we publish this joke, my... My thought was, you know what? This is not going to be well received. People are going to be mad about this. 
because it was so soon after her death. You know, they're going to think this is insensitive. That's what I was expecting. I was not expecting for everyone to wonder if it was true. (laughs) USA Today fact-checked this. Rated it false. And it's the, mo- it's the funniest fact check. Go look it up. Google it. They cited 15 sources in their lengthy refutation of this joke. They were placing phone calls, checking the Ninth Circuit Court's website, trying to figure out, did they really overturn her death? What does that even mean? Like, is that a resurrection? Does the Ninth Circuit Court have that power? The National Review did a a write-up on this one and said it was the stupidest fact-check in the history of fact-checks, and I think I agree with them. Almost as dumb as the washing machine joke. (laughs) This is probably unlike some of the other presentations you guys have seen over, over the course of the last couple of days. So, you know, Facebook is throttling our reach. As a result of these fact checks, we started getting labeled for incitement to violence. We had our email service provider cutting us off for spreading harmful misinformation. We found ourselves taking breaks from writing jokes and publishing them on the internet to going on shows like Tucker Carlson Tonight to defend our right to make them in the first place. And that was a, um, a weird and kind of uncomfortable place to be in as humorists in a free society. Should that be necessary for us to have to argue that we have a right to make jokes like this? You, those are some insane examples of jokes that got fact-checked. And we've been treated as though we're doing something wrong by making those jokes. It's unbelievable. It's really hard to believe, actually. And I think it's tempting. I I made this mistake early on uh, of thinking that the opposition to the bee was an attack on comedy, right? Because there is generally an attack on comedy. There's this safe space culture. Everybody wants their feelings protected. You know, they don't want to be offended. So there is, in a sense... There is an attack on comedy happening, but, but I don't think it's entirely accurate to say that what's happened with the bee, that what we've experienced, is an attack on comedy itself. I think it's an attack on truth and our right to speak it. The further we zoom out, the more it looks like comedy is just collateral damage in some kind of larger conflict. And I think there's a recent policy change over at Facebook that illustrates that point for me. Not long ago, uh, Facebook announced they'd continue to allow satire as long as it never targets marginalized groups who lack power and privilege. True satire, they said, does not punch down. Satire that punches down, that is, satire that takes aim at protected targets Facebook doesn't want you joking about, will now be subject to censorship. In fact, they've made it clear they'll consider jokes that punch down to be hatred disguised as satire. Other platforms have followed... Uh, suit with similar policies. And this kind of makes sense if you think about it. Honestly, in order to prop up an insane worldview that can't be defended or even coherently articulated, you have to shield it from criticism, don't you? Especially the comedic kind that uses mockery to expose foolishness. It's embarrassing to be exposed for a fool. It can't be tolerated. And we learned this the hard way with a joke about the transgender Admiral Rachel Levine. Have you guys seen the, the joke that got us, uh, the joke that was heard around the world? This is the re- I'll show you the real story first. This is the real story um, that was published on Fox. USA Today names transgender Biden official as one of its women of the year. This beautiful woman here. <laughs> Stunning and brave. This is an insult to women everywhere, by the way. I hope, uh, I hope everybody in this room agrees. They're gobbling up all kinds of accolades and awards at this point. They're not going to women anymore. So we fired back in defense of women and sanity with this joke. The Babylon Bee's man of the year is Rachel Levine. <laughs> Twitter wasn't laughing. They were not amused. They said, you need to delete this joke. They locked our account, right? We got, we got an email that said we engaged in hateful conduct. They locked our account, and they said, you need to delete this joke or you can't get access to your account again. And 
Over the delete button was this bright red font that said, by deleting this joke, you admit that you engaged in hateful conduct. So we refused, and we did not delete the joke. Hateful conduct. Hateful conduct. Now, let me, I got a couple comments I want to make about this punching down thing, okay? Punching down. Sorry, you, you don't need to keep looking at this. My apologies. <laughs> at least you already ate. I always forget and leave that slide on the screen. I'm talking for 10 minutes with that on in the background. Punching down is this idea that we're in this hierarchical structure. And some of us have power and privilege. Some of us lack power and privilege. Some of us are uh, uh, influential and our voices are heard. Some of us are, are ostracized and sidelined and our voices aren't heard. And there's this idea now that comedians are supposed to... The first rule of comedy is to never punch down, which is news to me. I thought the first rule of comedy was to be funny. Um, if you watch late night comedy, you realize that that is no longer the first rule of comedy. The first rule of comedy is apparently now to promote the popular narrative and never punch down. But imagine thinking to yourself, okay? We, we, we did the thought experiment earlier about how hard it would be to come up with jokes that are funnier than what Democrats are doing in real life. Now, think about this. Imagine if you're sitting there, you're writing a joke, and, and you're thinking to yourself, you know what? I shouldn't joke about those people. They're beneath me. <laughs> that doesn't sound right, does it? Maybe a little condescending. Maybe racist, misogynist, I don't know, whatever ist you want to throw there. I shouldn't joke about those people. They're beneath me. That's the mentality they want you thinking in when you're writing jokes now as a comedian is, I shouldn't joke about those people. They're beneath me. Beneath me? I thought we were all created equal. Shouldn't we be able to joke about each other indiscriminately? I think that's one of the ways that we can actually treat each other as equals, by, joke, by, by joking about each other, by not laying hands, by, by going hands off and saying, you know what, I need to give you special privileges, treat you differently. That's how we reinforce inequalities, by actually treating each other differently. We need to get, I think, out of that mentality. It's a very unhealthy mentality. And one, one more thought here on, on, on this idea of being marginalized. I have not yet, it's been a year, it was a year ago we made that joke, that was in March of last year. No one yet, to this day, has explained to me how we punched down at a white, male, high-ranking government official with more power and privilege than us. How is that punching down? This is a person who has the power of all of the institute, the government, big tech, the media, the education system, all of that power ready to be deployed to silence and punish anyone who so much as makes a joke at their expense. That is scary power and privilege. Scary power. I don't have that kind of power. You can joke about me all you want. I can't do anything about it. I could get offended, maybe. I could make a joke back. I can't silence and suppress your voice and get you deplatformed because you made a joke at my expense. There's no joke you could possibly tell about me that would have that result. So are the, is, it, is, is Rachel Levine really marginalized? Are these people who are being splashed on the covers of magazines really marginalized? The word marginalized has a meaning, does it not? It means to be forgotten. It means to be powerless. It means to lack privilege, whatever. You can not apply that to the transgender community. You know what community it does apply to? The preborn. They're marginalized. Where's our concern for them? They don't want us to joke about the transgender stuff that's happening but they're fine with abortion? They're fine with actually killing a marginalized community in mass? I find that a little, uh, a little hard to reconcile, to say the least. Anyway, this is, I think, uh, this, these rules about what you can and can't joke about, this is one of the ways that the system is rigged to protect and promote the popular narrative. Big tech is defending a fantasy world where two and two make five by censoring anybody who so much as even jokes about what reality is really like. And it's actually worse than that, because like I said, Twitter executives went beyond censorship. Censorship would have been taking the tweet down and saying, nope, you can't say that on our platform. We deleted it for you. They went beyond censorship. What happened here was subjugation. They wanted us to delete it ourselves. That goes beyond censorship. I've long held that when you censor yourself, you're doing the tyrant's work for him. We never even considered it. 
So what made this all the more outrageous is this uh, lip service commitment that platforms like Twitter have to free expression. If you visit the hateful conduct policy page on Twitter's website, it starts out with a ringing tribute to free expression. Do you know that? You go to the hateful conduct page, their mission statement. I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with the mission statement. Twitter's mission, they write, is to give everyone the power to create and share ideas and information and to express their opinions and beliefs without barriers. Free expression is a human right. That's on Twitter's website. It was on Twitter's website before Elon bought it, by the way. This rings hollow, in my opinion, when you consider the rest of the policy, which prohibits misgendering, deadnaming, etc. They've baked radical gender ideology into the terms of service that even objectively true statements like Rachel Levine is a man become enforceable policy violations. That seems like a barrier of free expression to me. It'd be one thing if these ideas, you know, these ideas that we're, that we're talking about mocking uh, were merely popular, but porting them into the terms of service of massive platforms has taken them from mainstream to mandatory. You can't criticize them, and you can't even joke about them now, thanks to these hateful conduct policies. Comedians are being canceled, in some cases physically attacked, for stepping out of line and telling an off-limits joke. You've seen some of this, right? Dave Chappelle got attacked. I read a story in the New York Post about a comedian who got stabbed for telling a joke that they should have told. Comedians now have to bring security with them before they go on stage. There are, however, um, thankfully, some liberal comedians who are pushing back on this nonsense. Bill Maher is one of them. I don't know if you guys have seen some of the comments that Bill Maher has made on these topics. But recently, he devoted an entire monologue to mocking the so-called gender-affirming care for kids. I put that in scare quotes because it's a euphemism. It's one of these euphemisms. It's a euphemism for sterilization, mutilation, castration, drugging. But he devoted a monologue to this, and he said, I understand that being trans is different. This is a quote. But kids are fluid about everything. If they knew at age eight what they wanted to be, the world would be filled with cowboys and princesses. I wanted to be a pirate. Thank God no one scheduled me for eye removal and peg leg surgery. That might be hate speech on Facebook, but I think it's funny. (laughs) The comedian's job is to poke holes in the popular narrative, whatever that narrative might be. If the popular narrative is off-limits, then comedy itself is off-limits. And that's basically where we find ourselves today. The only reason Twitter is now an exception is because the world's richest man took matters into his own hands and declared comedy legal again. The Washington Post reported that on his first day as CEO, Elon Musk issued an urgent directive, bring back the Babylon Bee. So after eight months in lonely Twitter jail, we were released. And we've been trying to think of a joke worth $44 billion ever since. So how did we get here? I have, a, I have a theory for how we arrived at this place where insane ideas are not just popular, but sacred, untouchable. How do we get to a point where it's considered hateful to tell the truth, even in jest? I think the answer is as simple and straightforward as this. We took bad ideas too seriously. Instead of laughing at absurdity, we accepted it. Instead of ridiculing, ridiculing bad ideas, we tolerated them. The absurd has become sacred because it hasn't been sufficiently mocked. The objection is always the same. Mockery is mean, isn't it? What are you talking about, mockery? The problem is that we didn't mock things enough. Haven't we improved morally because we mock less things? Well, mockery is not necessarily mean and cruel. I mean, we're, talking, we're not talking about mockery for the purpose of putting people down and making them feel bad about themselves. I'm talking about mockery for the purpose of exposing foolishness for what it is so that it isn't taken seriously. And this is a moral imperative for the obvious reason that bad ideas taken seriously have catastrophic consequences. Do they not? Ask any mutilated teen who now regrets their gender transition surgery or any inmate at a women's-only prison whose female cellmate got her pregnant. That really happened. Imagine if the ideas that produced those results had been laughed at instead of lauded. What a difference it would have made. There are a lot of things now. Tons of things 
innumerable things that are off limits in comedy, and too many people think that that represents progress. They think we've improved morally because we make fun of fewer things, but the exact opposite is true. We're more depraved than ever because we're affirming and accepting what we should be ridiculing and rejecting. In the end, though, parents and reality-based public policy are the last best line of defense against this madness. We need to be We need to be defending our kids by insulating them from the madness to the extent that we can. But we also need to equip them. I've said before that the best way for radical activists to ensure their bad ideas take root is to plant them in the most fertile soil possible, the mind of a young child. We have to beat them to it. We have to plant the truth there first. Children are impressionable. They soak up everything. They can't help but be filled with whatever ideas are presented to them. They don't just instinctively have philosophical and theological foundations to help them ward off bad ideas. We have to instill that in them. We have to resist the urge to respond to confusion when it does arise with affirmation. The chief responsibility of both parents and educators is not to affirm, but to instruct. And the responsibility of Christian citizens citizens is to advance public policy that preserves rather than erodes eternal biblical truth. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old he will not depart from it. There is a right way and a wrong way. There is objective truth. Our children need to be set on the right path, a real path in the real world, not some fantasy land, and they must be diligently guided and trained to stay on it. The world's religion, by contrast, teaches something very different. It says, confuse a child by subverting oppressive norms, then affirm him when he's finally lost his sense of who he was made to be. This is the wrong path that leads only to despair and destruction. If you hate children and want them to suffer, you'll affirm them when they're wrong about who and what they are. If you love them and want them to flourish, you'll correct them and instruct them in the way they should go. The French philosopher Sertelin just said this, Children complicate life, but so sweetly that they should serve to give the worker fresh courage rather than to lessen his resources. They give you a love-lit reflection of nature and of man, and thus defend you against the abstract. They bring you back to the real, about which their questioning eyes are waiting for an exact commentary from you. I love that quote. Our children crave an exact commentary from us on what is real and why it matters, and we need to be ready to give them answers that reflect and reinforce the truth of a biblical worldview. And when confusion arises, it must be met with clarity. We also need to be ready and willing to fight back in the public square and engage bad ideas head on whenever they rear their ugly heads and get traction. C.S. Lewis said, good philosophy must exist if for no other reason because bad philosophy needs to be answered. This is as true now as it's ever been. Bad ideas are everywhere, and social media increases the speed with which they spread and infect people all over the world. There can never be enough opposition to them. But never let it be said that our opposition to these bad ideas is driven by hatred. I'll quote one of my favorite authors here, G.K. Chesterton. Some of you may have heard of him. All right. The true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what's behind him. There is a war on reality, reason, and truth. It's fundamentally spiritual, not political. And there have been countless casualties, but it's not over yet. The next generation can withstand the assault if they're well-equipped, and if public policy that honors God's truth is advanced and vigorously defended. The responsibility for that lands squarely on each of us. We must value clarity as much as the enemy loves confusion. We must be as determined to affirm the truth as they are to deny it. We must be as eager to protect our children as they are to corrupt them. And we must be as willing to defend life as they are to destroy it. You are the post-row generation right here in this room. doesn't matter how old you are. You are the answer to the culture of death, and you're honoring God by joining in this fight. I hope you know that and never forget it. Thank you. Seth Dillon, everyone. Okay, I know you guys could stand and applaud for a long time after that performance.
But uh, we want to get into some questions. Seth said he is willing to take as many as we want. Obviously, we do have a little bit of a clock here. Well, I'm paraphrasing you. I said Uh, two maximum. (laughs) So let's go through these. We have some very good ones. Um, In fact, I want to start with my own. Where did the name come from? The Babylon Bee name or my name personally? (laughs) You can answer either one. (laughs) Uh, So... The guy that started the site, his name is Adam Ford. I didn't found the bee. I, I took it over in 2018. But he, he was starting it kind of as an answer to what you saw going on with The Onion and, and late-night comedy, all being driven by a secular, leftist, progressive ideology. There was no comedy that was really coming from the other side. And so he wanted to create a comedy site that was uh, fundamentally Christian. It was run by Christians. Um, he, didn't, he didn't want to make it all about Christianity. Um, I think, you know, he, he, he agreed that he agreed with C.S. Lewis' view that we don't need more Christian books. We need more good books written by Christians, which is kind of a paraphrase of something that Lewis had said. And, uh, and so he wanted to create something that was good, that did really good comedy, but from a different worldview, a different perspective. And the idea with the name Babylon Bee was, you know, uh, uh, Christians in our current culture are, are somewhat sidelined. We're not, not that we're victims, but we're certainly not mainstream. We are, we are looked upon with distrust and disdain. Uh, for the most part, and so it's almost like we're in our, our, our own kind of exile. So hearkening back to the, a reference in the Old Testament where the Hebrews were in exile, exile in Babylon, he said, you know, maybe we should consider these as dispatches from exile in modern day. So he called it the Babylon Bee. Terrific. Thank you. Yeah. It is spooky how you answered that when you said, we don't need more Christian books. We need good books written by Christians. This yeah. is the quote. You did not see this. It's crazy. Are the writers of the Babylon Bee conservative comedians or just comedians who simply write conservative satire? <laughs> That's spooky. You, could, you can look at it either way. Um, the reason that I would, I would describe them as comedians who happen to be Christians or conservatives is that they're actually really funny. They're very good. They're talented. And they, and they lead with comedy. What we're trying to do, you know, there's, there's, it's a twofold mission, right? We want to make people laugh. But we also want to speak truth to culture. So it's, you can't really untangle them from each other um, from our perspective. It's, uh, they're, they're very intertwined. So um, you could really kind of cut that up either way. But, but I, I say that we're not just a Christian alternative to something that secularists have always done better. We're a good alternative that happens to be run by Christians. I just received a card. Uh, message received. Sorry, folks. It says, hey, MC, reminder, we lose an hour of sleep tonight. So I did forget really? that, actually, so my apologies. We'll, we'll, we'll rip through these as quickly as we can. Uh, do you have a book, or have you thought of a book compiling all of the Babylon Bee headlines? We have, um, we have like a best-of book, yeah, called The Sacred Text of the Babylon Bee, Volume 1. Um, it's a beautiful, large, like, coffee table book. It's really well illustrated and everything, and it has a collection of of some of our biggest hits from our early years, like 2016 to 2019, something like that. And there's a volume two that's forthcoming. So, yes. Awesome. Uh, who has influenced your comedy? Do you have any satirical heroes? Is that aimed at me personally? I guess I every, so. everybody on our staff has different influences. My, you know, I honestly, it's, I don't know if this is embarrassing to admit or not, but my, my comic style is primarily influenced by The Simpsons. <laughs> I, <laughs> I grew up watching The Simpsons uh, against my parents' wishes. Uh, my dad did not like that. Um, but, you know, the, the, the writing was so good. Um, but there's a lot of... Our, our, our writers come from so many different backgrounds, and they all have different, different influences. And some of them are older, some of them are younger. You know, some of them have influences from, from, from past uh, decades, and some have more modern. So uh, it's a really healthy mix. Follow, we need, quick we need more women. That. We need more female writers. We need more, or at least more men who identify as women. <laughs> <laughs> quick follow-up to that. Ballpark percentage, how many of the satire headlines have you written? Uh, a percentage of the total? Oh, yeah. very small. We have, I think we have almost 10,000 articles published, and uh, a couple hundred or a few hundred of them are headlines I've written. Okay. It's not, I, I'm, not, I'm not spending my days writing headlines. I, I, I do pitch them from time to time. Do you have, like, a king in the, in the writing crew, like somebody who does more than everybody else, or are they all pretty balanced? No, oh, we definitely do, yeah. Uh, if okay. I tell you his name, you're not going to try to hire him away from me, are you? <laughs> I'm not planning on starting a new site anytime soon. I so. have a... So our editor-in-chief, he was the first, he was the first um, hire 
that we had when I got involved with the beat was a two-man show. The guy who founded it, Adam and Kyle, they worked together. And Kyle was a construction worker, part-time pastor, who had submitted some headline ideas to, to Adam the week Adam launched the site. And some of them were great. It was a lot of church jokes. It was stuff like, Holy Spirit unable to move through congregation as fog machine breaks. And it's this... And the, and the images of this congregation, of this, of this auditorium that's so filled with smoke you can't even see the stage. And he submitted a bunch of these ideas, and they were great ideas, so Adam immediately hired him. And Kyle, we, we describe him as an idea fire hose. He's just limitless. And he, he thought, he was like, after, after working for us for a couple of weeks, he's like, that's it, guys, I'm out of ideas. I gave, I gave you all my good stuff. But he's still, uh, seven years later, we just had our seventh birthday, he's still writing for us and, and churning him out, so... Yeah, I have, I have key man insurance on that guy. If he gets hit by a bus, I get paid. <laughs> uh, this one is obviously related to the headlines that you guys wrote that later came true. Do you think you guys should slow down a little bit because you're giving them too many ideas? It's a joke, but... Uh, <laughs> it does feel at times like they're copying our website. <laughs> and... It's very strange. It's bizarre. It's, it's not the kind of plagiarism that you want either because it's, it's disconcerting. Um, yeah. I, it, it, we're, you know, we're, the, the challenge, like I said, it's, it's thinking ahead. It's exaggerating the truth. We're, we're trying to stay a step ahead of reality when we're making these jokes, and it's just becoming harder and harder to do that. We've had, there's actually been a couple of cases where we, we made a joke that came true later that day, literally within a matter of hours. There was one, uh, I remember, it was about, um, uh, it was a joke about how CNN would cover the Abraham Accords when, when Trump was orchestrating that whole thing, and, and it was about how, I'm not remembering the headline exactly, but something about how he disregarded COVID protocols and was shaking their hands in the middle of a pandemic or something. But that's exactly how CNN covered it a few hours later. They were criticizing the COVID protocols of his team rather than, you know, covering the monumental occasion that was happening before them. So... Um, it's just it's just bizarre. It's hard to stay ahead of reality. Ladies and gentlemen, Seth Dillon. Yeah. You've been listening to Seth Dillon, entrepreneur, venture investor, speaker, humorist, and presenter for the 2023 Bringing America Back to Life convention. From the Median is listener supported. Visit our website, fromthemedian.org, for further information or to make a donation to continue to make this radio program possible. Email us, radionews at fromthemedian.org or call 440-668-4049. Through our FromTheMedian.org website, you can download this or previous programs for your listening pleasure or sign up to receive our weekly preview of upcoming guest interviews. Tune in every weeknight at the same time to listen to another great interview on From the Median as we plan the route that takes us back to the culture of life. This program has been sponsored by Cleveland Right to Life and is responsible for its content.